Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Spotlight On is brought to you by Light, the technology platform reimagining e-commerce for live events, which you can learn more about at light.com. That's L-Y-T-E dot Today, the spotlight is on Jeremy Sirota, CEO of Merlin. Merlin provides its members access to digital music licensing deals enabling the leading independents across the globe to compete at the highest level of the modern music ecosystem. Merlin is member-led and consists of independent labels, distributors, and other rights holders, representing tens of thousands of labels and hundreds of thousands of artists from every country on earth. Jeremy has been with Merlin since January 2020 and has guided the organization through COVID and into the third decade of the 21st century with momentum and expertise. We cover the story of Merlin, Jeremy's background, and the various issues and opportunities in front of independent music creators. Enjoy. So normally I start with um, a little bit of a deep dive into the guest before we talk about what they're currently doing, but I think I want to flip the script a little bit with you um, just to clarify um, who and what Merlin is, because I've always gotten it wrong when I try to explain it. And so since I have the horse here i'd like his mouth to say the words <laughs> yes I, i'm happy to be the horse for you uh can i just start off and thank you for having me today it's uh, very nice to hear your voice yeah and uh you may be uh surprised to hear this since i've been in the role for about 15 months but this is my first podcast so all right thank you uh thank you for being uh the first uh, for me today yeah thanks for making time that's awesome uh, yeah, so I guess the best way I'll start off is the quickest descriptor of Merlin comes from Spotify, who has referred to Merlin as the virtual fourth major. Mm. And the natural question then is, what does that mean? And we are the independent digital music licensing partner. And that means we strike premium deals with digital music services, the likes of Spotify, TikTok, Facebook and Instagram, Apple, SoundCloud, and another 30 services around the world. And we do that so that our members can compete at the highest levels on behalf of their businesses and their artists. And within that membership, we have tens of thousands of independent labels from around the world representing hundreds of thousands of artists and millions of tracks of music. And the way I've always thought of our role at Merlin is we're enabling creatives. You know, we take the heavy lift. We do the, the business grind on the licensing side to sort of give our members that access to those premium deals, to getting them into deals early, and then better enabling them to take the advantage and maximize the benefits from those partnerships. Mm-hmm. So, so that's Merlin a, in a nutshell. It's essentially... Uh, consolidated buying power? Is that sort of a simplistic way of saying it? Yeah, we take a collective approach. And, you know, we enable, you know, it's a, it's, and it goes both ways, right? We, we both provide a valuable service to our members, right? It's 
giving them access to those partnerships, giving them access to premium deals, um, advocating on their behalf with the services, but vice versa, it's also providing a benefit to the digital partners, right? And there's the easy benefit, right? Which is just a single licensing partner, a consolidated payment and reporting structure, but we also serve as that partner just to help our members enable into those partnerships, right? And you know, our members can take as much or as little advantage of those services as they want. But when you look at digital partners, you know, it's sometimes difficult to know the entry point, or it's sometimes difficult to know what to prioritize. And that's where we can help across our membership, which is varied. I mean, there's, you know, 500 plus members from virtually every country in the world. And I think in 2020, so 2020, we added 81 new members and there were new members from places as varied as United Arab Emirates, uh, Slovakia, uh, Peru, Singapore, Burkina Faso, Ghana. So every year there's just a more and more diversity coming in uh, to Merlin. And so we want to continue to ensure that we can provide them what they need as they look at this sort of ever evolving digital landscape. How are you finding labels in all those territories or are they are they finding you? Yeah, so and it's and it's not just labels, which is what makes Merlin also unique, right? It's it's labels, it's distributors, right? Entities that also represent um, labels and label entities. Uh, it's DIY distributors, it's artist management companies, it's hybrid entities. Oh, it's wow. a really uh, diverse tent that is Merlin, which makes us, I also think, very unique in this ecosystem. Uh, to your question, you know, there's, there's a couple ways that it happens. I think, first and foremost, the, the best advocates are Merlin, are the Merlin members themselves. Uh, they are some of the most passionate uh, in the independent space. And once they've joined Merlin and they've been with us, they really sort of, in a way, like I was, converted, right? I've always known about Merlin and appreciated what they do within the digital ecosystem. And when I took over as CEO last January in 2020, uh, I was always really impressed and excited I was really humbled to be given this role, but there was also a little bit of a conversion when I came here that I wasn't expecting. And I think membership is similar in that sense. So our members can be our best advocates. Uh, we see so many people referred from our members. Uh, second is just people seek us out and find us. And that comes whether through just our basically our website, um, that comes from the independent trade associations around the world. Uh, that comes from um, us as a team being out there uh, talking about Merlin so people understand uh, who and what we are. Um, and, you know, every year we have hundreds of people applying to join Merlin and we have some unique qualifiers. Uh, so not everyone can join. Um, but I also think there is a sense of, you know, that makes it a little bit special as well. Yeah. Can you talk about the qualifiers? Yeah, absolutely. There's there's a couple things that's required for the path to Merlin membership. 
the first is, you know, you need to be prepared to handle digital supply chains, so delivering your assets. And there's plenty of solutions in the marketplace. Plenty of people do that in-house. A lot of technology-enabled uh, independents around the world. Uh, and there's plenty of supply chain providers as well uh, that you can work with. Uh, you also need to be ready to handle raw reports, which is a lot different than a report that you may get through another entity. Uh, and so there's a lot entailed in handling that. Your analytics you need to handle. You need to be ready to do digital marketing on a global level probably. So there's some elements of how do I take care of all of these things that maybe I had taken care of for me. Uh, and so... Uh, those are sort of a couple of the key ones um, and uh, just being ready to also lean deeper into the digital ecosystem, understanding it better. I mean, I think that's one of the great things about joining Merlin is we are sort of owned by our members and we are governed by a board that's also elected from our members. And we sort of operate like a not-for-profit. So everything we do is through oversight from our members and on behalf of our members. And all of the revenue that we drive comes from our members. So we are singularly focused on our members and how we can drive value to them. Because if we're not doing that, then they're going to look elsewhere. And it creates for a very unique structure to Merlin and how we think about uh, the world. Yeah. Yeah. Who's too small to join? You know, we've never defined it by numbers. It's not sort of quantified. I think, um, you know, if someone shows up and they're an artist with one track, I would say there's a lot better places you should be. You know, there are plenty of DIY distribution companies that are set up specifically with you in mind. Um, there's a lot of smaller labels that probably are not quite ready to take on everything that's entailed, right? They, they should apply their resources differently, right? Towards their artists, towards A&R, to promotion, to some of those other areas, as opposed to trying to solve for all of these operational elements that might be entailed with joining Merlin. Mm -hmm. uh, and is Merlin primarily a creature or a product of the digital age? Or like, can you give me a little bit of context as to when did Merlin start? What was the sort of founding moment or founding mandate? Like any context there? Yeah, so Merlin was founded, so it's 13 years ago. It was uh, 2008 when it became more official uh, in the public. And the mandate was really simple. And it's really, it's sort of, it's what's really been fascinating to me is how foundationally strong that mandate still was back in 2008 and still is today, which is how do we ensure that independence can be treated on an equal playing field so that they can compete at the highest level. And that was the thesis in as the sort of digital ecosystem started taking off. And there was a lot of moments from the early history where independents were not being treated that way or didn't even have a seat at the table, right? They weren't even being spoken to. I fast forward to now, and I can't speak to the whole history that I wasn't here for, but the year and a half I've been here now, I would say that it's a complete reversal of that, that people seek us out, right? There was a reason why we were the first uh, sound recording licensor to Snap. We're the first deal they struck with a sound recording partner. 
is because they see the value, right? There's a, there's a lot we bring to the table. And when you have such a diverse repertoire within your membership, uh, around the world too, and, and, and not just um, in um, you know, the US and Europe and North America, but we have really strong Latin American members. Uh, we've made a big focus in Africa, the Middle East and Southeast Asia around making sure that people know about Merlin and what we offer. Because one of the things about Merlin is that we treat everyone equally a member, as members. Uh, everyone's being treated in a fair and transparent way on equal footing. Everyone signs the exact same membership agreement, right? This, we have the same rate that applies across the membership. You know, we charge a 1.5% admin fee, which probably has to be the lowest in the world. Um, but that's the same across everyone. And, you know, if you think about other sort of commercial partnerships, right, you have the ability to negotiate, right, and offer different rates and offer incentives. And what we really just offer to independents is the opportunity to be as independent and have access, right, without a gatekeeper. We don't act as a gatekeeper. We act as a bridge for our members into the digital ecosystem. Uh, and we we take a lot of pride in helping them achieve more on behalf of their artists. Yeah. Functionally, um, does their digital revenue then come into Merlin? So today, if if I'm an independent label, I have a distributor. Um, I guess the distributor pays out to me periodically. Are you basically are they assigning their revenue collection to you? Yeah, that's one of uh, it's and it's actually in a sense a benefit as well. So we. We are we do the central licensing, right? Um, we take in payment and we take in reports. And after sort of striking that deal um, and engaging on the partnership on behalf of our members, one of the central things we do is to make sure that we get paid and reported as quickly and as promptly as possible as, in a correct manner, and then turning that around as quickly as possible to our members. And that means when we're getting reports, we're processing them and turning them at, around as much as possible in real time. And we're trying to do the same on payments as well. As soon as we get those payments, we're turning those around as quickly as we can uh, to our members. Uh, so there's very little you know, uh, differential between, between those moments because we know how important that cash flow is for our members. Yeah. We've made that a big component of what we try to do. You've used the word uh, compete a few times, sort of allowing the independents to compete at the highest level. Um, and, and what I'm hearing, and I'd like, I would love it if you could either dispel this notion or, or elaborate on it, is that it sounds like what you're talking about is really access to markets and the rates under which they're operating. Is that, is that sort of what compete means in the Merlin context? Yeah, so compete can mean a couple things. Um, you know, uh, if you think about first-in-time deals, is a great example. Right, the first time you strike a new deal with a new digital service, the the quicker you get that deal done, uh, you are in a sense time-shifting money, right? So if you spend an extra six months, or if you don't engage someone for twelve to eighteen months, that's just a period of lost time where you can't shift time shift money backwards. So one is just getting independents access to digital partners earlier than they could on their own. Mm. 
Uh, and that's a great example of just a benefit there in and of itself, right? The access to that digital partner where they may not be able to get to all independence in a timely fashion. Uh, and that's why that's a benefit both directions. Second is just that premium deal, right? And that, that collective approach allows us to offer more to our partners um, and to get more on behalf of our members. And that can come through all sorts of different benefits in a deal, um, you know, whether that's advances or revenue guarantees, uh, marketing commitments, equity um, in services. So all those sorts of uh, benefits can entail from the, the approach we take. Mm -hmm. And are there, given how well, um, you know, sort of English language or Western content travels, um, are there, are there services, either territory specific or regional services that, um, a more Western oriented artist or label would not have visibility or access to, but Merlin can sort of open that to them? Or are you primarily dealing with global services? So we've, I think there's a couple of ways to segment the market towards your question. There's a couple probably flavors of this. There's the global services. Uh, out there, uh, mostly in streaming, but not entirely. Uh, you have this advent of sort of the social music services, you know, with Facebook and Instagram, TikTok, Snap, Triller, sort of falling into that, that world. And there's plenty of others, by the way, that are country and regional specific as well. Uh, and then you have regional services. And examples of that, that, you know, Merlin has deals with is, you know, there's, there's uh, uh, Yandex, UMA in Russia, you know, we have deals with Tencent and NetEase and Alibaba in China. Um, you know, we just announced our Jukes deal uh, a month ago, which is a ad supported streaming service in Southeast Asia, and a little bit in Africa. Uh, so we're, we're, we look at it at sort of all different in each of those sort of pillars of types of, of deal types. And each one of them could present different challenges to to independence. And so when we look at it, we always think about it in how can we provide value? And our takeaway has been that we always can provide value to our members. And not every member needs to participate, right? That's one of the other sort of soft benefits of Merlin is you choose the deals that you want to participate in. Hmm. And that's a really interesting approach because it's just another way in which we built an organization that makes us hyper-focused on the needs of our members, right? So if we're not serving the needs of our members in our deal-making and in, in the partnerships that we enable for them, then they have the option to sort of opt out. And what we found is that uh, whether it's a service in China or Russia that can be challenging to work with, maybe there's translations required, uh, there's always resource constraints at digital services. Every single one of these is sort of a softer benefit that Merlin can bring to our members. And then helping on the partnership side to determine how do I lean in, where do I lean in, what is the repertoire that's going to perform better for this type of service in this region that I may not as be familiar with. And, and that works to the benefit of the partner as well as to the benefit of our members. Yeah. What are some of the unique things you have to do to make sure that, um, you know, you talked about sort of the, the, 
the global representation of your membership? How do you make sure, you know, there is there is a global voice within Merlin in terms of that representation? Um, it must, it, I would imagine that that's a that's a that's a unique challenge to try to accommodate all the different local and regional needs, points of view, but then just the logistics of language and custom. And how does that like what you know, how does that impact your your life? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. Uh, it, it usually means I'm starting my days quite early on the phone and finishing quite late at night. Uh, one of my biggest challenges is just telling myself to stop at some point. I even yesterday, you know, it started at 8am. And I don't think I finished till oh, 1030. Right. And that's, you know, 14 hour days is not uh, sustainable, as uh, my wife keeps reminding me. And um, but I think there's a couple ways. So number one is the best way is to be talking to our members. And it's something we do across all of our teams, uh, whether it's our commercial partnerships teams, our member relations teams, you know, our business, uh, business and legal affairs and deal team. You know, we just have a lot of touch points and we take in a lot of input from our members and we're very uh, solicitous of it because it's one of the key ways that we can learn. Right. We're, we're a team of about 35 right now. And, you know, you always have to recognize, you know what you know, but you don't know what you don't know. And that's where our members are really helpful uh, to us and educating us. Uh, I love the emails I get from members just saying, hey, just wanted to make sure you knew about this. Uh, and I always appreciate that. Or, hey, here's something we're seeing that's working. So that's one way. The other way, which is really unique, you know, I mentioned before we're a, a member-owned organization, and one of the ways that that illustrates itself is that we have a board uh, that is uh, comes from our membership, right? Every member is eligible to uh, not nominate themselves to run, and then every member has an equal vote for the board. So it's both from our members voted on by our members, and the way it breaks down is that there's three buckets. So we have 15 board members and um, we currently have three advisory uh, board members and the 15 come from three different regions, right? So we have a North American region, we have a uh, UK European region, and then we have all other country region. And that means that there's five from each of those sort of regions. And that means that we get a very diverse perspective on our board, uh, which really provides a lot of insight. Right. So we have Michael Ugu, who runs Free Me Digital uh, from Nigeria. He gives a lot of insight into the African marketplace. He's been there his whole life. Um, he's had a lot of different roles, and that provides a lot of benefit to us when we think about Africa, we think about membership, we think about partnerships, and we think about how can we help educate and support our, the rest of our members who may not know about uh, that region. Mm. Similarly, we have, you know, uh, Jack from Danger Crew in Japan. Uh, we have Chan from Fluxus in Korea. So it's it's really geographically spread out the board, and it was specifically designed uh, with that in mind. And uh, I really appreciate the insight they provide as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'd like to come back to some of the um, some of the interesting regional and territorial opportunities um, in a minute. But I'm curious of the the way you articulated the pillars of how you um, you view the different types of services. Where are you seeing, and I'm going to use the two words in case they don't overlap, where are you seeing growth and where are you seeing innovation? Hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. 
I'm going to go back to uh, a little bit of history, which probably most of your listenership knows about, but it's always good to keep in perspective, right? Which is, if we skip the whole vinyl, 8-track, cassette tape era, and just start at CDs, uh, and I recognize there's a lot more before that also, and some incredible inventions, but if you start at CDs, there was an impression at the time that the CD was the end of music evolution, right? Right. It was small, it was compact, hence the name, it's transportable, it lasted a long time. Well, then came downloads. And at that point, they said, well, this must be it. You can access it digitally. the end of music. <laughs> the end of music, right? <laughs> yeah. And then there was this theory, what was back then called the Celestial Jukebox, uh, which is what really streaming music streaming services have become. And that was... This must be the end. <laughs> uh, and then this little invention called social music came along, right? In a new way for users and fans to engage with music, to embed music within video and short form content. And we kept saying, okay, well, this has to be it. Well, everyone's probably been reading about NFTs the last couple weeks, uh, which have been sort of simmering beneath the surface for at least a year or two now. And you have all these new concepts about digital marketplaces. And what I keep coming to is music is such a universal concept, right? Uh, for me, it's always been the way that I've expressed myself um, through listening to music. My, you know, I derive my emotions sometimes from the music I put on. Uh, sometimes I listen to more upbeat music because I'm in a down mood. And sometimes I'm in a down mood, so I want to listen to down music. And it's really sort of that poetry set to melody, and it's understandable why music keeps reinventing itself and finding other ways into consumer products, into this digital ecosystem because of that. And so you ask sort of what's really happening out there that's innovative. I think the couple spaces where you're seeing some interesting ways for people to engage with music is a lot within this VR space. Uh, within the fitness space, I think there's some people doing some really interesting stuff there um, that I think from an artist's perspective is exciting. Uh, I think um, some of these concepts, and it's maybe not even NFTs, but just these concepts of digital marketplaces, I find it interesting because I think sometimes for artists as a creative, right, the cadence of some of the digital platforms doesn't fit within the cadence of how they create. Mm. And so I find it very interesting for people who are focused on trying to create tool sets that allow them to engage with fans that's more in line with their creative cadence, which in a way is just basically saying reimagine fan club uh, in a sense, right? So the person who can get that reimagined fan club right, I think there's something really interesting. I, I can't tell you I've seen one right now, but I'm seeing a lot of interesting experimentation on the sides of that. Uh, and I find that exciting uh, with what's happening. Uh, I also think anyone who can get social streaming right, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who have been experimenting and trying to make it work to fit the elements of a social engagement aspect with the streaming of music. And because music's always been sort of a lot of times more of a background element to life, merging those two together has been, I think, more just challenging from a, a user experience yeah. standpoint. 
But I think there is a way, there's an element there that can be not an always on, but like almost more like touch points or inflection points in the day, as opposed to how do I get someone to engage for 20, 30 minutes at a time? Yeah, yeah. Do you, um, I, I feel like some of that does dovetail into the, uh, into the way the fitness services are using music or the wellness businesses are starting to use music, whether it's in the apps or even commissioning music now or becoming just, you know, even uh, exclusive outlets for some new music. Um, do you work with those platforms yet? Or does, does is Merlin looking at those platforms? One of the things we do all the time is engage in conversations and evaluate opportunities. You know, there's a lot of services out there that right now are best done at sort of a label artist level, mm -hmm. at the experimentation level. And we have a lot of uh, our members in particular. You know, I always like to think independents have always been at the bleeding edge and have been the most dialed in with sort of wanting to experiment and try out new opportunities. And that, once again, going back to like learning from our members, that's a great way with we help to evaluate is not just conversations directly with the services, but hearing back from our members where things are working and where they think there could be a larger opportunity. Uh, but I think it's an exciting, exciting space. And I definitely see a lot of upside. And it's something we're paying a lot of attention to uh, right now. Yeah. Are you seeing that those services, do they tend to be hit driven? Or is it is it more about... Um you know, the taxonomy of the music, the sort of the mood, the tempo, the what, whatever it might be. I would say it depends on which one, uh, which service and what they're trying to engage in. Uh, what I would say is what we've seen uh, definitely in the social music space is that the membership and repertoire that exists within Merlin is very much over indexing uh, in that space. And that is a space that is very band driven. Uh, and so I think there's something very interesting happening within independent music, uh, within sort of these new, new forms of like music engagement uh, that, I, that keeps me very excited and interested uh, in the space. To, to sort of reframe the question about um you know, where you see the business opportunity in terms of the types of services, what are you seeing uh, regionally and territorially, both for content import export, but also like local repertoire? Are there new markets basically that are heating up and what are you seeing there? Listen, there's always new markets um, kind of heating up. I mean, the Kind of if you go back to the 2010s, the some of the biggest issues were around smartphone penetration, given the amount of activity happening on mobile uh, and data costs. Right. Those were probably the two biggest uh, hurdles. And, and then there was some challenges with sort of um, uh, credit cards and how do you charge fees and collect monies, yeah. uh, which has been increasingly solved for. Uh, there's still data constraints. Uh, around the world. It's still a challenge in, in regions, uh, though it's becoming less so than it definitely was 10 years ago. And so as that happens, right, and you see any number of markets uh, that you're seeing a lot of activity, a lot of interest, uh, a lot of services, whether existing services or new services, 
sort of taking more attention to and building a presence. So Russia is a great example. Uh, India is obviously a great example. You're seeing a lot of experimentation happen within that country. Uh, China, there's always a lot of interesting things happening there. Um, so it's it's something where we know uh, as Merlin that we can definitely help our members, right? When you look at these sort of not just the global services where we provide a huge benefit to our members and to our partners, but also these regional and country specific where the entry points can be difficult with a partner, right? Even just basic things that I have to remind myself we take for granted, just being able to know who to call or how to access someone over there to talk about a deal. Um, and so just some of that sort of burden we just take off our members and we can help to evaluate and find those opportunities by, um, by talking to all the services in those countries or regions, having a view from our members in those places, and then helping to make those determinations for our members. Uh, and it's exciting. It's exciting to, be, to see this happening and to see that there's still a lot of interest in trying to launch new services, to build new brands, to engage with music in new ways. Because uh, I think it's the world is worse off if there's just a couple players uh, around the world. Yeah, yeah. Is there a um, <laughs> to, is there still a market anywhere globally for um, for ringtones, or is that business just gone? It, <laughs> it's it's definitely it's not what it was when I, I remember. Uh, at least in the U.S., there was uh, there was ringtone charts for uh, a minute yeah. uh so it's always fun to look at the uh those charts showing where you know sound recording revenue comes from on a global basis and you see this l very little sliver for ringtones and ringback tones I, I think you still see it in certain markets uh around the world uh it's uh, as far as i'm aware it's been a minute since i've done a deep dive but i think it's been on the decrease uh globally virtually everywhere yeah. Uh, so I, I think in some places it probably constitutes, you know, a small portion of the digital business, but nothing compared to uh, the rest of the ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, I ask because one of the things that was interesting that you were saying earlier was that, um, you know, this idea of like today's formats, the end of music and um, and how you know, your sort of your thinking around that notion has changed a lot. And, and what occurs to me is, once music was truly digitized and unlocked and untethered from physical format, that's created all these other opportunities. So download and streaming were really more just like the most obvious music specific products, but now music can start to hide and exist and lurk in all these other products that probably couldn't happen before when you had to embed a physical thing somewhere. And I, I wonder if, I just think that, that that's an interesting implication that the um, the digital file or the digital nature of music now it allows it to live in so many new product configurations that probably haven't even been dreamt up yet. Yeah, it's, I like that question uh, or statement because, you know, one of the things about my background, uh, and I'm glad, you know, I'm happy we skipped right to Merlin. I, I love talking about Merlin. I'm super proud of this organization and our team and what we do on behalf of our members. But if we just do a, a, a small rewind and, and we think about a lot of people who come into the music industry, uh, I didn't come through a traditional path. 
And by that, I mean, at least within the U.S., like, I never managed a band. I wasn't a college DJ. Uh, I didn't, I wasn't in a band. I think I played guitar for a year and realized I was completely tone deaf. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, I didn't do concert promotion. Like, that just wasn't my path, right? I've always been a huge uh, fan of music. You know, I've been going to shows since, gosh, since I was 12 years old, I think, was my first show. And uh, I find it so engaging and so exciting. But my path really was through technology. And, you know, I was that kid in middle school is in the computer club. Uh, You know, I used to pull apart and put back together computers with my dad. Uh, You know, so I was, you know, it's been a a pretty old language, but I used to code in Pascal, right? This sort of predecessor to C++ or C++. And that was my pathway was through technology. And it's how I ended up going to law school. Uh, and becoming a tech lawyer, I was really fascinated by that intersection of technology and content and the implications for both, for how technology is created and deployed and how content is thought of. Uh, and when you think of content, you then have to think of formats because that container is such a big part of what goes into the creative process, right? The difference between creating an oil painting versus a digital painting. Uh, creating something that's going to live on vinyl versus something that's going to be embedded into an Instagram story. Uh, All those just have very different implications. And what's exciting about digital is that it does keep going in these new and interesting directions. And it's that classic, I don't know what I don't know, right? So one of the things that I think about a lot and I, I was actually talking to someone today about don't let your list for today distract you from five years into the future, right? Which is, I want to get a lot accomplished today. Uh, I have a lot of goals for myself this year, but I think a lot about what does this look like in five years? And how do we as Merlin need to be structuring ourselves, approaching the marketplace and educating our members to be prepared for that future? And, and that's that's exciting to me because it's it's that unknown unknown and it sort of appeals to my kind of figure out itis sort of syndrome I like having, which is how can I figure this out? Uh, and that's that's an exciting space to be in. Yeah. How does a technology lawyer come to be the CEO of Merlin? What just to, to do that rewind with you? What's the <laughs> what's the path? Because on the face of it, um it seems like it's the exact right um, sort of skill set or, or, or mindset to be leading an organization like Merlin at this particular point in time. What did you have to learn between law school and Merlin to be able to be effective at Merlin? And maybe less so now, but it was definitely a sort of non-traditional career trajectory uh, to how I got to where I am today. Uh, let me start with that, and then I'll come back to your question uh, about what does the what what skills does that sort of enable in, in it now? Which is uh, when I graduated, so I grew, grew up in California. And when I graduated from college, I ended up spending two years in New York, and uh, I I was really in the arts. I was a I was a graphic designer, doing flash design. If you remember that, <laughs> uh, when it was a thing. Thanks. 
<laughs> Sorry. Uh, you know, I was, I was 22 straight out of college. I don't know. Like, that's that's what you did in New York, I was told. Uh, well, and, and actually, I'll tell you the funny thing about that was, so I show up at my job. Uh, I worked at a, a company called Juno Online, which for anyone on this call or listening doesn't know that, it was an AOL competitor. It was not one of the original ISPs. Wasn't it free? Uh, it was free for a minute, yes. Yeah. Uh, so I don't fully recall their entire business model. It's been 20 plus years, but uh, I'm sure Wikipedia has a good roundup. I, I suspect it had something to do with free internet access in exchange for watching Jeremy's flash-enabled ads. <laughs> <laughs> I, I bet you if you go to the Wayback Machine on the Internet Archive, maybe you can find some of my old designs <laughs> on there from 1999. <laughs> Those are NFTs uh, waiting to happen. Exactly. <laughs> the... <laughs> The I show up on day one, and there were two things as a Flash designer I didn't know how to do. Uh, number one, I didn't know how to program in Flash. And number two, I didn't know how to design. I had never opened Photoshop or Illustrator. I literally showed up for a job. I knew absolutely zero about how to do it. And I, no joke, Lawrence, I, on my lap I had a Flash design for dummies and a Photoshop for dummies on my lap on day one, trying to figure out what I somehow convinced them to give me a job to do. And, and I just use that by way of example, which is, you know, I use that term figure out itis, which is, I just, I like to, I like to be challenged. I like to sort of flex. And what happened over those two years is I had this incredible run at the creative side of things. I realized for me, it was not a career. It was something I liked doing personally. I still I still write a lot. I still draw a lot. I love doing photography. I love going to museums. I love going to shows. But I didn't want to make it the way that I made my career, my money, to, you know, enable lifestyle. And so I did a what seemingly seems like an odd pivot, but to me made total sense was I went to law school, which is sort of in some ways the other side of the coin of an MBA. It's an entry into the business space. And with a very clear path in mind, right? I, I knew the law firm I wanted to work at. I knew the type of work I wanted to do. And I knew where I wanted to go next. The only piece that I didn't know was the music piece. And I came back to New York after law school. I spent five years as a technology lawyer. And one of the outfits I worked for was Warner Music. And when I was looking to go in-house after law school to go work inside of a company, as a lawyer, I actually intended to go on the technology side. And what I didn't know at that time until I started exploring was in 2008, there wasn't a lot of technology in New York. It's very different than it is today. And Warner Music was really interested in a technology lawyer. Uh, and, you know, I, I wasn't, it wasn't exactly the path I thought I was going to go down, but music's also one of those things that once you're in it, it's just... It's so intoxicating, right? And I've always been on the services side. And for me, it was sort of a, a sort of trajectory where I spent about nine years at Warner, including three years working with ADA. I moved on to the Facebook music team, mm. which then combined my love for music and working with music and enabling that in the digital ecosystem with my love for technology and working uh, within a technology company to enable these new music experiences. And that sort of almost inexorably led me to where I am today, yeah. 
which is someplace like Merlin, where my biggest question when I got offered the job was to make sure that I had value to offer. And when I looked at the intersection of my career, you know, former lawyer, very complicated digital licensing, you know, uh, arrangements. Um, having worked in music, I've been on the major side. I've done work with ADA. I've been on the service side. I've done business development. You know, I've done M&A. I've done equity. I've done all these different. I'd run operations divisions. I'd worked with supply chain. I've worked with our research and analytics. So it's sort of like this intersection of everything that Merlin was doing sort of fit with what I had done in my career. And what I was really excited to do was to take all that and then use that to just have a platform to work with a team to sort of better enable all of that for independence. And, you know, it's a great team at Merlin, super passionate about independence. And, you know, I just, I, I, I've loved every step of my career. Someone asked me once, what's been your favorite moment in your career? And I say, every moment that I've been in has been my favorite. Um, but each one progressively gets more interesting. And tying it all together and this just shifting landscape and sort of trying to be this beacon for independence and help them. Uh, it's just a really exciting part right now. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, listen, I, I, I know our, uh, our time together is starting to, to run out. I did have a couple of other quick questions. Um, what's been, because it seems sort of unavoidable, what, what's been the impact of um, the pandemic on your organization as well as your members and um is there to leave on a slightly higher note is there an opportunity that you see unique to this time of coming out of the pandemic that that's going to present something really exciting i i would say two things from a from a member side the most important aspect for me was making sure that we could provide the support they needed uh, especially last year which was a challenging year I, I believe, and I think our members would say something similar, which is that 2020 proved that uh, Merlin's the partner that independents want and need on their side, both in good times uh, and particularly bad times. And that, you know, we were hyper-focused on in a time when a lot of our members who were reliant on touring or on management or on re other revenue streams that were disappearing, we could just continue to be focused on driving incremental revenue, new revenue streams. Uh, from a team perspective, you know, it, I, I was just really proud of how much everyone stepped up. Uh, we've had half of our company now who started at Merlin in a work from home scenario. Wow. And they've virtually almost all of them have not even met someone else in person. And yet we've achieved what we've done despite that challenge. And so I'm really proud of the team. Uh, and their accomplishments and their just perseverance through this. This is for at a personal level for many people. It's been very challenging. Um, you know, I for myself, I've been really lucky. I've gotten to spend more time with my wife and daughter than ever before, and that's just been fantastic because I've been on the road so much of my career. You know, there's other people on our team who may be single, living alone, uh, and you know that can just be a challenging period. So we've tried to do our best to kind of support them through through all of that uh, to make sure that they can come out the other side of this as strong as they can. Uh, what do we, and what was your follow-up question? What, what can we learn from this or take away from this? 
Yeah, or more specifically, um, is there is there something coming out of the pandemic that mm. that might be unique to this time that that's sort of exciting or is presenting an opportunity? There, you know, listen for at a, at an artist level, I would say there's a couple of things that are exciting. One is I think there's a lot of independents who've spent this period of time uh, doing a lot around the technology front, around education, the marketplace front, um, finding ways to experiment in new in new areas to see what else could work for them. So I feel like a lot of learning has come from this um, across the membership and across independents generally. Uh, I think from an artist level, there's just a lot of pent up excitement to get back out there. Yeah. And so I, I mean, everyone's been saying this, but I really see these sort of um, as we come to the other side of this, which we're not quite there yet. Right. There's, you know, plenty of areas around the world where there's still a lot of struggle, a lot of challenges. Uh, but in places you know, like New Zealand, um, which has done a really good job and had a lot of success. You just see this energy around music because, you know, going back to what I was saying before, it's such a universal way of communicating and expressing your emotion. And after this really challenging period, one of the things we want to display in uh, full regalia is our emotions. And music is still the number one way to do that. And what I... What will this look like when we come out of it and how will it express itself? Just I see a lot more coming from it, both on the live side, on the artist side, the fan engagement side. I think we're just starting to see um, a whole new revolution in what's happening within digital and live and artist and fan engagement. Uh, so I have a lot of um, hope and excitement and energy about what's coming in the future. Cool. Well, let's leave it there then. <laughs> an upbeat note in this day and age is a good place to stop at that's right let, let us both shut up before we start uh <laughs> before we chip away at that beautiful sentiment um thank you for making time thank you i really appreciate this lawrence this has been a, a great experience appreciate the the good conversation Thank you so much, Jeremy Sirota and the team at Merlin. Thank you, Aunt Taylor and the team at Light. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Get and share all of our past episodes, write a review, and even send us a message through our website, spotlightonpodcast.com. Join us again next week. And in the meantime, be safe and stay in touch. Cool.